So it's my freshman year of high school, and our varsity basketball coach has decided to bring up myself and a bunch of other JV basketball players to join the team at the end of the season. Now, we're all well aware we're just going to be practice dummies for the varsity squad. Like, they're just going to beat up on us. We're never going to get a play. But it's still kind of exciting. I'm especially excited because our next game is against Lachlan High School. And I love playing Lachlan because I had a ton of friends who went to Lachlan. Guys that I grew up playing baseball with and hanging around town and things like that. And so I was excited to get to this game. Until we started to play the game and Lachlan was killing us. They're going up and down the floor as fast as they can, dunking the basketball. Crowd's going crazy the whole time. And our coach gets so frustrated that he pulls all the varsity guys out and he puts us JV guys in. I don't know if the punishment was that they had to sit or that they had to watch me play, but we all suffered that night. I can particularly remember getting a rebound, going the length of the floor all the way to the free throw line, and seeing Andrew Wilhite in front of me. Andrew was a friend of mine, really close guy, and he is six foot seven on a short day. I'm 5'10 on my tall shoes, right? Okay, so you can kind of picture what's going on here between the two of us. There you go. Uh, actual picture. So I'm playing here. Will Height's underneath the basketball hoop. I have the ball, and the thought occurs to me. He's a little too far under. If I shoot this ball up high enough, I can get it over top of him and score my first two varsity points. So I bend my knees. My coach yells, no. <laughs> Will Height's eyes get really big, and I shoot the ball and he blocks it right back into my face. And the crowd goes, ooh. So I'm holding the basketball now. Will Height's a little bit closer, and I think he won't expect me to shoot this again. So I bend my knees. My coach yells, no. Will Height's eyes get big again. I release the ball towards the hoop, and he swats it right back into my face a second time. At which case the crowd goes, ooh, one more time. So now I'm holding the basketball in my hands for the third time at the free throw line, and I think he definitely expects me to shoot this ball again. So I bend my knees. My coach yells, no! Will Height's eyes get really big, and I pump fake the shot, pass it to a guy underneath who scores a layup. You can clap. It's okay, guys. That was a good play. All right, there you go. All right, and the crowd all goes, ooh, like they're impressed by that one, right? Because there was no way I was going to let him block me a third time. I was going to learn from my mistakes. See, we've all been in a place where we've tried to do the same things again and again with the same result of it getting smacked right back in our face. And for some reason, we have this tendency in our lives toward a pattern of ugliness. See, we're getting towards the end, as Rick said, to this series of ugly faith, where we've taken people out of Hebrews chapter 11 that are singled out for their faith, their assurance in things hoped for, and their confidence in things unseen. But there's an ugliness to their story as well. Whether it's an ugly sin issue, whether it's an ugly situation, whether it's just ugly people around them, we see that their stories and their faith isn't always pretty. 
It's usually pretty mismatched or out of place until God shows up and he puts things in order. This whole series, we've been adding ugly furniture onto the stage and putting it in mismatched places and annoying the mess out of the band while we do it. And we decided this week to have our wonderful office administrator, Janet, come in and she made everything functional for us, right? She put everything in order in the way that it's supposed to be. She cleared it up for us. If you have your Bible or Bible app on your phone or even the North Point app, go ahead and pop that open and you can follow along with us today and fill in a few blanks. We're going to start out in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 and 34. Hebrews eleven thirty-two says this. It says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. See, when we read a passage like that, we think, man, these are some amazing guys. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames. Man, these all sound like great leaders who had it all together and created a legacy of strength and honor and victory. But as we read their stories, we find out there's more to it than just that. There's some ugliness to their lives as well. We've already looked at Gideon a couple weeks ago in his story, so this morning I want to grab another character out of this, this passage here. I want to check out Samson. Samson. So if you flip over in your Bible all the way back to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. We're going to take a look at what's going on here in the first verse. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A few things to note here. First of all, Israel has messed up. And they've rebelled against God's plan again. And now they are being ruled by a foreign people. This has happened a lot before that God provides that the people rebel. Another country takes them over. Israel cries out. And a few years later, God sends a rescuer. Only this time is a little bit different. This time, they've been conquered for 40 years. That's twice as long as any other time in the book of Judges. The second thing that we know here is that they were in the hands of the Philistines. This is a strong people group that at one time tried to invade Egypt and were unsuccessful. So they settled up north and they conquered and took over the land that God had promised to give to his people. Third, if you notice, Israel doesn't cry out to God this time. Every other time, they cry out to God with repentance, asking for rescue, and God sends a judge to them. This time, there's no crying. There's no repentance coming from Israel. This is a people that has forgotten about God, and they've given up. Instead of fighting to claim the promise of land and blessing that God has given them, and the leadership that he has for them, they have settled to be ruled by a bunch of home invaders. Israel has surrendered themselves away from God. Look at verse 2. It says, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. 
The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor, because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to God from the womb, he will take the lead in delivering Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. So Israel's defeated. They've given up. They've forgotten about God. But God hasn't forgotten about them. And he's not giving up on them. Instead, God performs this miracle and he sends them a leader from a barren woman to begin delivering Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. God makes sure that the mother knows that he's chosen and that in order to lead and to stay out of trouble, her son is to follow the Nazarite vow. Now, what is this? What is a Nazarite vow? If we jump back to uh, um, Numbers, Numbers chapter 6 tells us that somebody who takes the Nazarite vow must not cut their hair, must not touch dead bodies, and must not take anything from the, from the vine. So no wine for an appointed amount of time. And for this new leader, for Samson, God has said that he is to stick to this vow his entire life. Now why would God put a vow on Samson for his entire life? It's to keep him out of trouble. It's to free him up so that he has the ability to lead his people like God has called for him. See, God has this great plan to rescue his spiritually apathetic people from the Philistines. And he's raising up a leader like they have never seen before. Who's going to take them to brand new heights. And who's going to do amazing things because God has chosen him. And because he's going to display the kind of righteous living that these spiritually apathetic people need. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. See, guys, as we get into this story, we're going to see that Samson keeps making the same mistakes. He keeps falling back into a pattern of ugly again and again and again, that Samson struggles with pride and that he struggles with anger and the women in his life and ultimately he squanders away the potential that God gave him. But God does not give up on Samson. So turn over to Judges 14 and we're going to jump into his story here a little bit. Judges 14.1 says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. See, right off the bat here, Samson, the leader that God has chosen to break his people free from the Philistine rule, could care less about his calling. Instead of conquering Philistines, Samson wants to marry them. Even the boldness of this guy, as he walks up to his parents and he says, Mom, Dad, went down to Timnah, found me a real nice Philistine hottie. You need to go get her, put a bow on it, let's make this happen, okay? I'm ready for it, right? Like, that's crazy. Samson is this boldness and he goes and he's ready to do this. The, the Bible doesn't tell us that Samson talked to this woman. doesn't say that he knew anything about her other than the fact that she was a Philistine, and yet he is ready to make her his bride. And his parents try to warn him, Samson, maybe you should go on a first date before you get engaged. Like, get to know her. Maybe there's somebody better out there, but he wants nothing to do with it. Verse 3 says, His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives? Okay, I'm beginning to wonder about mom and dad here a little bit. 
<laughs> Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all other people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. God's working in spite of Samson here. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother, and as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, check this out, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. And he told neither his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and liked her. Okay, sometimes the Bible is a little casual about the way that they describe things, and it makes you just kind of go, wait, what just happened here? Let's look at this lion thing here for a second. A young lion attacks Samson. The Spirit of God comes upon Samson so much that he tears the lion apart. And the way that the Bible describes Samson killing this lion, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I have no idea what Samson was doing with young goats in his spare time. Like, that is just weird. Why doesn't say, like, he tore it apart like a piece of paper or like cloth, No, like a young goat. No idea why I chose to use that description, but what it's telling us is that Samson is a bad mamma jamma, all right? Like, this is a strong dude. If you just watched, stayed up late last night and watched the Mayweather-McGregor fight last night, them dudes wouldn't stand two minutes in a ring with Samson, okay? Like, this is a powerful, powerful guy. And eventually, he gets his first date with this Philistine woman, who we still don't know her name, and he decides, yep, she's the one for me. So verse 8 says, Sometime later he went back to marry her. He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Okay, we've got two issues here. Number one, eating honey out of a dead animal's body is gross. All right, like, I don't know what is with Samson, but that is just gross. All right, number two, Samson just broke his Nazarite vow. No haircuts, no wine, no dead bodies. Samson just broke his Nazarite vow. God has chosen him to lead and to do amazing things. And he puts these guardrails, this protection plan to keep Samson from falling off the wagon. And yet Samson ignores it. He's beginning to show us his ugly side. He doesn't care about his calling. He doesn't care about these protections that God put in place. See, ignoring God's plan, ignoring God's way only leads to pain for us and for others. And Samson is getting ready to figure that out. Look at verse 10. It says, Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of this feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. And he replied, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. So Samson is getting ready to get married. 
seven-day feast, and he's hanging out with all of his groomsmen, assumedly drinking too much, which would break another portion of his vow. And he decides that he is going to trick all of them. He gives them this impossible riddle about the honey that he found in the lion's body. But there's no way these guys can answer this riddle because only Samson saw the lion and the honey. So then what do these guys do? Look at verse 15. It says, On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, and you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. All right, first of all, there is not a better way to start off your marriage than by calling your wife a heifer. <laughs> Fellas, if you are not married yet and you see her walking down that aisle, just start mooing, okay? And she's going to turn around and walk out on you, okay? That is not the right way to start off your marriage. Good move there, Samson. So these 30 guys have now turned the tables on Samson. They have turned the tables on Samson. They have threatened his new bride and her family and caused her to spend seven days crying to Samson for the answer. And eventually he gives in because he is tired of hearing her cry for seven days. And she, in turn, betrays her husband and tells the 30 guys the answers. See, this is a terrible way to start off your marriage. Maybe Samson should have gotten to know his new bride a little more. Let's see how Samson reacts to this. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, another, um, another Philistine city, and struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who attended him at the feast. Samson, in his anger finds 30 random Philistine guys who are wearing nice clothes, kills them, gives the clothes to the guys that he owed a debt to, and then he goes home leaving his new bride behind. His bride's father, thinking that Samson wants nothing to do with her, wants to annul the marriage, is not coming back, gives her to one of the guys who attended the wedding. Some guy showed up to this wedding and walked out with a brand new coat and a bride. Like, you can't make that stuff up. Chapter 15 goes on to tell us that Samson later on returns for his bride only to find that she had been given to another man. And obviously this makes Samson furious. He gets so mad that he says, you know what, I'm going to pay back the Philistines for tricking me and for giving my bride away. So he catches a bunch of foxes ties their tails together, sets their tails on fire, and sends them off into the Philistine crop field. And it burns up a ton of the Philistine crops. The Philistines in return get mad at Samson for burning their crops, so they take his wife and her family and burn them to death. 
Samson gets mad that they just burned his wife and her family to death. And so he takes the jawbone of a donkey and with it kills a thousand Philistine men. And all of this started when Samson ignored his calling and ignored the vows that God had put in place. All this death, all this destruction, all this anger and deceit started when Samson ignored the guardrails that God had put into his life and when Samson ignored the calling that God had put in Samson's life. See, Samson is proof that our decisions affect more than just us. When we ignore the callings that God puts in our life and when we ignore the guardrails that God sets up to protect us from harm, it affects not only us but our family our community, our loved ones, and maybe even 30 random guys wearing nice coats. Our sin and our calling doesn't just affect us, but it plays a role on those around us as well. Your calling affects the way that you lead your family. Ignoring your guardrails can affect your marriage or your job or your friendships. All of that destruction, all of this pain could have been avoided if Samson would have just pursued the calling that God had put into his life and paid attention to the vows that God had placed in his life. We have to learn from Samson's mistakes so that they don't become ours. Samson's displayed a pattern of ugly so far in this story. He's tried to do things his way, and each and every single time, it's gotten blocked right back into his face. So the question now is whether Samson's going to try and shoot the ball again and get it blocked, or if he's going to pass it off and let God have control. Look at chapter 16. It says, One day Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. Gaza's another Philistine town. And he went in to spend the night with her. And the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. See, Samson doesn't learn. He's supposed to be conquering the Philistines, and instead, he'd rather consummate with them. Once again, Samson's decisions have left him in a place where his enemies are lying in wait to kill him. Verse 3 says, But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, the entrance to the city, this giant gate, and together with the two posts, he tore them loose, bar and all, lifted them to his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. See, this is an amazing feat of strength that has now left this city exposed to danger because their entrance is wide open. See, it's amazing to me that even though Samson has ignored God's calling, he's ignored God's plan for protection. He's done the total opposite of what God has asked him to do. God is still using Samson to beat the Philistines. Samson is not trying to follow God's plan, and yet God is using him to destroy the Philistines and to slowly break free his people from their reign. It's amazing that God continues to keep moving whether or not we're on board with his plan. It would go a lot easier for Samson if he would listen and if he would trust God and if he would hop on board with what God wants. But regardless, God is going to continue to work in spite of Samson. See, God is so much bigger and more in control than we can even begin to understand. That is an amazing 
and comforting thing to know. Verse 4 tells us that sometime later he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Samson hasn't learned from his pattern of ugly. He continues to ignore his calling. He continues to ignore his garbells, and he seeks relationships with these Philistine women. Delilah is the only woman in the entire Samson story that is named, and the reason it appears is because she plays a very significant role for Samson. Samson has fallen in love with her hard, unlike any of the other women in his life, and the Philistines use this love to trap him by paying Delilah to find a way that he can be beat. Verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Samson's got to realize here, something's up. Here's a red flag. She just asked, hey, what's your one weakness? He tells her and she tries it. Like, dude, come on. You've got to see something's just not right about this woman. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me, which she just did the same thing. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And he said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have not been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took the new ropes, tied him with them. Then with men in the, hidden in the room, she called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arm as if they were threads. We all know how that saying goes, right? Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Verse 13 Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he replied, If you were to weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. Like, he's just making stuff up now, right? Like, just wants to see how far she'll go at this point in time. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. And she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. All right, Samson, you've tried to shoot the ball again and again and again. And each and every single time, Delilah has blocked it right back in your face. It's time to pass the ball, man. It's time to pass the ball. Your way, it's not working. It's obvious that if you continue down this path, it's only going to lead to pain. Even if you've never read this story before, you can see what's coming ahead. You can see that this is only going to hurt. Verse 15, then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? 
This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. She told, or he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands, and after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He never learned. Samson breaks his vow again. See, the really ugly part of Samson's story isn't just that he had a bad taste in relationships or that he had anger issues or that he walked around with way too much pride. All of those things contributed to the ugly. But the thing that breaks my heart about Samson is that last line of verse 20. He did not know that the Lord had left him. God had chosen Samson empowered Samson, stood by Samson every step of the way. And when he finally breaks the last part of his vow, he had already been away from God for so long that he didn't even realize God had left him. That's the heartbreaking piece. Verse 21 says, Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. Samson is now at his lowest point. He's lost his calling, he's lost his protection, he's lost his sight. In fact, it's not until Samson loses his eyes that he's able to see what has happened in his life. Some of us know what it's like to hit that point. We've made decisions that have left us blind and bound in a place that we never thought we would end up. But the good news is there's hope. Verse 22, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Samson lived a pattern of ugly, ignored his calling, ignored his protection that God had put in place. And even after Samson hits rock bottom, which is exactly what he deserves, God is still there. The Bible mentions this verse because it shows us that there is hope. It doesn't matter what you may have done. It doesn't matter how long you've been running away. It doesn't matter how old you are. God has not given up on you. Yeah, it can be really tough where you are right now. You may have put yourself in a corner surrounded by ugliness, but God is still there. Verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. 
While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. He's blind, he's bound, and now he's being humiliated. And the Philistines are praising their false god for the victory over Samson. But like I said, God is still here. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson reached towards the two central pillars on the temple, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all of his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. So what do we take from the life and the death of a guy like Samson? A man who was given a calling and a vow of protection and yet spent his entire life fighting both of those things. I want to take three things from Samson's ugly faith. Number one is the what ifs. What if Samson had the calling and the protection plan in place? He could have been the greatest leader that Israel ever had, overcoming the longest captivity that they ever had as a nation. He had everything going for them so that he could follow his calling and he could lead like nobody before. God could have used him to take Israel to places of brand new heights that they had never achieved. And his legacy could have been so great that today we would talk about having faith like Samson and listening like Samson and following your calling like Samson. But we don't. Instead, we're stuck with this gaping hole of what if. What if Samson had stuck to his vows? What if he had engaged in that calling and truly led the Israelites? What if he had learned from his pattern of ugly just one time? See, we have to make the personal decision not to let Samson's mistakes, Samson's pattern of ugly, become ours. We have to learn from Samson's life and embrace the callings that God has placed in our lives and trust the protection that God has set up so that we don't end up blinded, bound, and humiliated, begging for just one more chance at what we were called to do. I think the second question is, where were Samson's people? Where were Samson's people? people. Samson didn't have a single friend walk up to him telling him that he was headed the wrong way. Even at his wedding, it was 30 random people that they had put together for him. Samson desperately needed a life group. 
And I'm sure he had every excuse in the world as to why he didn't invest in people that would love and care and correct him. He was too busy. Thursdays are his trivia night. Or he didn't know a lot of people in his place of worship. Or there's always next time. They say that by the time you need a life group, it's too late. And that was never truer than for Samson. He didn't have a single person to lovingly tell him he was falling into a pattern of ugly. We have to learn from that. We all have blind spots in our lives and we need people who will love us and care us enough and be strong enough to tell us that, hey, we are in a pattern of ugly. We need a life group or people that will walk through this life with us and who can help us when this world blinds and bounds and humiliates us. I think the last thing we can take from Samson is to finish strong. Finish strong. As we saw, Samson messed up again and again and again, and he left God and he ignored his calling and he ignored his protection. He hurt people around him without any regard, and he did whatever seemed right to him. His whole life seemed like one selfish, poor decision after another, but yet he finished strong. Samson did more for his calling and his death than he did in his life. See, we may have messed up huge in our past. We may have been away from God for so long that we don't even recognize Him anymore. We may have made horrible, poor decisions that have left us humiliated. But God is still here. It's never too late. You're never too far. You're never too old. Decide right now that regardless of what's happened in your past, that you will finish strong. Whether you're finished strong is one more day or 40 more years. Make the decision that you're going to follow God's calling, embrace his protection, and that no matter what, you will finish strong. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for the ugly faith of someone like Samson. God, somebody that we can, we can learn from. God, that we can know that when you put a calling or a protection in our life, God, that we can embrace it to do amazing things for you, God. And God, to know, Lord, that we desperately need people in our lives who will keep us for making the same pattern of ugliness so that we don't end up with a life of what-ifs, Father, but so that we can get to the end, Father, having finished strong, having looked back and known that even mistakes that we have made along the way, God, that regardless of those things, from this day forward, Father, we will finish strong for you. We love you, we worship you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son. Jesus Christ. Amen.